Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle, delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, Conservation, Education, and Hunter Advocacy. Hornady, Accurate, Deadly, Dependable. Trigicon, Brilliant Aiming Solutions. Taurus, Makers of the Raging Hunter Handgun. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, Double Nickel Taxidermy. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Before joining Larry with today's episode, let's get a few words from Hayden Outdoors, the brand that sells land through our conservation today. When it comes to minerals, it's important that you understand how they work. The goal with minerals is to bridge a gap where Mother Nature lacks. Utilizing a properly formulated, high-quality mineral can result in increased muscle growth, immune response, reproductive success, forage intake, milk production for fawns, and a reduction in skeletal abnormalities. In this series, I will go over each mineral and the roles they play, starting with calcium and phosphorus. Calcium and phosphorus are both macro minerals. While calcium is Earth's fifth most abundant element, phosphorus is typically deficient in most soils, especially those in the eastern and southern United States. Used in the largest amounts for blood clotting, muscle contraction, antler development, milk production, fertility success, improved digestion, general metabolism, and skeletal development. Calcium and phosphorus can be robbed from the skeletal system to meet the requirements needed if not provided in adequate amounts. The effects of these elements being deficient can lead to weaker bones, poor milk production, reduced conception rates, decreased body weight, and reduced antler development. This is why it's important to provide abundant access to quality minerals for your deer. 
I'm Brandon Houston with H3 Whitetail Solutions. Now on with today's episode. Welcome to this morning's campfire, or maybe evening campfire before we get finished with everything. We're coming off an absolutely fantastic event for the DSC Foundation, and one of the truly great things that happened is I had the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Shane Mahoney. He's a wildlife biologist, and most of you people who have ever thought about wildlife conservation or anything having to do with it, the North American model and so many different other things, con- so many things dealing with wildlife conservation and people as well because it comes right down to it. Shane is one of these guys who I, I listen to because I love his voice to begin with, <laughs> but I love the knowledge that comes out of his voice. And Shane, I can't tell you how much and how appreciative I am of you sitting here this morning with us. Thank we you. talked about a lot of different things last time. and We did. It was great. And there's several things. We talked about the North American model yeah. of the wildlife conservation or management, and which is one and the same as far as I'm concerned. But... You're involved now with so many other different things. Conservation visions, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Tell me a little bit about that as well, too. Well, um, you know, about uh, 10 years ago or so, um, you know, it was getting to the point where, you know, I had had a long career in government. Um, I had a lot of interesting things that I wanted to do in the conservation space. I mean, that's, you know, I'm... I'm um, I'm sort of doomed to conservation, if you will. I mean, that's that's what I do. Thank God for that. <laughs> that's what I do, and and, and 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 I really feel it's the most important calling in the world. Uh, I really do believe that, uh, because the future of the planet, and the future of humanity, and the future of wildlife are dependent upon it. I can't think of a bigger, more worthwhile Amen. thing to work on you know, than that. And um, so I I was decided to form my own. Uh, organization and I had certain certain guidelines in my head about that number one I I wanted it to be small uh, I'd led big government departments and lots of staff and all of that and I didn't really want to go back to that number two um, I wanted it to be freewheeling in the sense that you know I would be able to do what I wanted to do and I wouldn't have a big hierarchy that you'd have to you know respond to and answer to um, and I wanted it to reflect my values and, um, you know, whether they're the right values or not, I wanted them to reflect my values and I wanted my values to be openly reflected so that anybody looking at conservation visions would know what it meant. And I started with this idea of, obviously the name conservation was very clear what I was dealing with, but visions is something that a lot of people sort of ask me about because even a lot of people, when they hear it first, they'll write down conservation vision, singular, and right. the plural. Right. Right? But for me, um, you know, someone asked me one time um, at the end of a, a workshop, they, they came up to me after, and they said, you know, we find your, your ideas very interesting, and, you know, what kind of advice would you give? You know, what's, what's, what's the best way of, of living a life? And I said... You know, we have about 8 billion people on the planet, and therefore there are 8 billion ways of getting through life. That's how I see it. And I said, so when it came to conservation, you know, I thought, who am I to come up with an idea um, that, you know, speaks for, you know, the people who live in the Congo Basin? 
who am I to come up with, you know, the vision that works for the people who live in in Greenland or in, you know, Pakistan or or in Uruguay or wherever. I mean, we know that, you know, since human beings moved out of Africa approximately 70, 75,000 years ago, that all this diversity we see around the world has basically arisen from those same people experiencing those different environments and developing cultures which eventually are what changed people. It's all cultural. We look pretty much like the people who came out of Africa, but we, we have so many different traditions of music, of food, of knowledge, of politics, of, of ways of living, of cultural expressions, of ceremonies, of religion. That's all cultural. And uh, it's not genetic at all. It has nothing to do with genetics. And um, so I really felt that something so significant as trying to safeguard the natural world would only be possible if people could find a way through their own cultures and their own experiences to be able to engage in that and to have this very bottom-up kind of process rather than have some expert in quotation marks, you know, telling them about it. And, and I also felt that, um, in a way, um, the visions that we have for conservation, they're not just visions that come from talking to other humans. They are visions that come to us from watching animals themselves, watching natural landscapes, experiencing natural forces like floods or tornadoes or hurricanes or thunder and lightning storms or great wind storms or, you know, all the seasons themselves. Uh, you know, there's a great deal of knowledge about conservation that doesn't just come from reading a book or talking to people. And so I felt that the best way to sort of quickly, easily, in a short way, encapsulate that was to call what my journey was going to be was conservation visions where I would learn from as many others as I possibly could, including non-human others, and which um, I would hopefully also demonstrate to the world that you could be a, a player in that space and, and, and try to be inclusive and open to other ideas, even though you had certainly very strong principles of your own. I believe in the sustainable use of nature, for example, and while I'm in great favor of certain protected spaces like national parks or other things, I mean, I, I believe the question before humanity is not whether we will use uh, the planet's resources or not. We have no choice. We are animals ourselves. We must use it. We need fresh water. We need air. We need product. We need food. We need clothing. Uh, the, the only real fundamental question therefore remains is how will we use it and the only answer to that that makes any sense at all is that we use it in a sustainable way that doesn't impair our own or future generations and doesn't impair the natural world so sustainable use to me seems to be not only some kind of preferred way Larry it is to me the only way that the world can proceed and so Conservation Visions is an organization that works to, uh, to build a better world. My motto for the company, uh, for the organization, is one natural world, 
one humanity, one chance. We're all in it together, and unless we solve the problem, if we do, we will succeed together, and if we fail to solve the problems, we will all fail together. That's So that's what the company is about philosophically and value-wise. And um, it's also, however, about the idea that one has to recognize we live in a global space. And so I had to make what was really a rather painful decision for me, um, and I'm still not entirely comfortable or happy with it, which was to move out of my very much more local Newfoundland-based efforts, you know, protecting that culture, working with the wildlife that was there, to trying to do something on a much, much bigger stage, uh, which would not necessarily always give me the same kind of personal feedback, you know, that, that working in my own place gives me. But I have done that over the last 10 years or so, and now I think I'm probably as engaged in, for, in within North These are... <laughs> it's amazing how the phone has a tendency to ring just when you don't want it to. But, yeah. uh, we're, we're sitting in Shane's room, actually, and, and given an opportunity. And unfortunately, I forgot to turn my phone off. So, yeah, No problem. Uh, I apologize for that. And so, uh, you know, my, uh, my efforts, my travels in the international space um, has really been an attempt to to bring together those kinds of uh, viewpoints and perspectives from around the world and to try to bring them into this idea of conservation visions. Um, and I have worked extremely hard over that time period, a great deal of travel, um, and now I have appointments with various international organizations such as the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, the International Council for the Conservation of Wildlife, which is based in Budapest. I serve as the President of Policy and Law for that organization. I serve as Vice Global Chair for Sustainable Use uh, for IUCN itself. I serve as the, a member of the IUCN delegation to the Convention on Biodiversity for the Scientific and Technical Review Team. Uh, I also serve as a as the IUCN representative to what's known as the Cooperative Partnership on Sustainable Wildlife Management, which includes the big organizations like Traffic and CITES and FAO and all those big players in IUCN itself. And the result of that has been that I am now in a position, and CITES, I'm now in a fairly unique position as a North American to say I know about all of those processes and I'm involved in all of those processes, not passively, I am physically engaged with responsibilities to those processes. And that has really helped me do a couple of things. Number one, it has matured my view of conservation because I get to see how it's playing out in Europe and Africa and Asia and South America and so forth, um, which makes me better understand and appreciate our own model, the North American model, but also helps me understand what's necessary in other countries. It allows me to extend informed advice to many North American entities 
such as Dallas, for example, or Wild Sheep, or you know, other many of the other partners that I have, the Bass Pros and the Sitkas and the business partners and the state agency partners that I have. You know, I have a, a big wide partnership. It allows me to do that kind of thing. But that's where I sort of am able to bring value back to North America and to help develop better policies here that can withstand global pressures. But I'm also using that to continue my work with the North American model because I think the North American model is pretty well established in Canada and the United States in our thinking. It could be improved, but it's gone a long way. But it is very poorly understood in the global community. And so now I'm using those connections to bring the North American model to the world. And why am I doing that? I'm doing that because the world is searching for case studies, for best case examples of what can work. And I don't bring the North American model to other parts of the world and say, hey, you know, just pick this up, take it, put it in the middle of France, or put it in the middle of Namibia, or put it in the middle of Botswana, or whatever. But I do want them to know that there are certain inspiring elements about this model that everyone needs to think about. We had abundant wildlife. We had very abundant uh, human communities here before Europeans arrived. We ended up having a, a, a terrible uh, window of conflict between the peoples that were here and the peoples that came. Um, and ultimately, we also had a very terrible experience with wildlife because we decimated wildlife and the natural environment here. But we have, with respect to the conservation of wildlife, turned a corner. We gathered uh, our senses, essentially, and we developed an approach to wildlife conservation that included the use of wildlife as a very important component. The obvious thing for the founders of the model to have done was to eliminate all killing of wildlife. That was the problem, after all. But they didn't do that. And the miracle was they made regulated sustainable use of the resource a cornerstone of the recovery and led to the science and the funding and all those kinds of things. Um, and so I bring this as a message of hope to countries that, first of all, say, you know, don't think that Canada and the United States always had it figured out, you know, it's not like we were specially gifted or something. We did a pretty pee-poor job, you know, for a long time with our wildlife. But, on the other hand, we did institute change, and we did institute a system of change, known as the North American model, that has led to the abundance of wildlife we have today, with turkeys in our driveways, and, you know, you know, Canada geese on our freeways and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that we have, white-tailed deer eating our geraniums and, and so on. And, uh, and that's not something to be forgotten because you in other parts of the world who may still be struggling at some phase of this, you know, can take inspiration from the fact that we were able to do it. So I'm very much on a mission now to bring the North American model to the world. And... Uh, and uh, that has become a preoccupation of mine, and uh, I think I'm making some headway there, but it, it, it's slower, but at least now I hear people talk about it, and we have the book and so on that we can use. And now um, I'm trying to move into another dimension, really, of the model, or to borrow a, a, a dimension of the model, 
which is this whole idea of harvesting for food, which has been so important and so integral to the model. You know, we have laws that say you can't waste wildlife, you know, we, we, we take the wildlife back, we consume it, we share it, and so on. I've become very, very heavily involved in that because I suddenly realized that um, despite all the good that's happened around the model and the science that I've been involved in and the efforts to promote the model both domestically here in the United States and Canada and around the world, that um, that can go so far but ultimately we have to find a way into people's minds and hearts that's natural for them and that's universal, uh, universal for men, for women, for children, for African Americans, for, for Latinos, for indigenous peoples, for, 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 for Chinese people, for German people, for, for everyone. And that's where, of course, I settle on this idea of food and, and the wild harvest, which, right. which you know about. Yeah. How can people become more involved? Uh, you do an absolutely fantastic job. You've got disciples now, thankfully, <laughs> coming along which to me are helping spread the word. But what about the average guy? How can somebody that listens to this or all of a sudden becomes aware of some of the things you're talking about, how can they become involved? What's, what's their best means of involvement? You know, I, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, just as in the past, so too in the present, that you know, conservation is achieved by a million tiny steps by individuals and not really by organizations and prominent individuals so much. You know, if we look back, Larry, on the history of conservation in North America, it's easy enough to remember, you know, the big names that, that emerged, right? You know, it's, you know, anybody can, can, can bring them up and they can raise the names, former presidents, you know, former prime ministers, you know, former editors of newspapers, you know, Forest and Stream, and people who built major zoos and founded organizations like Boone and Crockett and others that were very old, and the Audubon Society, and so on. But, you know, it's not to take away from what individuals accomplished, and some of them led extraordinarily, extraordinarily lives, but they were also complicated people who had some value systems we mightn't even agree with today, but exactly. nevertheless, um, they did make contributions in the conservation space. But it was, you know, the average person who did the right thing for conservation. In the world of hunting, for example, we've never had enough enforcement officers to be able to be even close to, in quotation marks, policing the legal hunter, right? Right. Most hunters abide by game laws, not because they're going to get caught, but because they believe in it and they, they, it, and, yes. and, and they do it. And it's, you know, they, they self-police. Um, and, um, you know, everybody from somebody who has a small piece of land, elderly man, elderly woman who, you know, has a small garden and is doing something and is caring for the soil and who's interested in pollinators and does the right thing for them or teaches children good values about the outdoors, not to be wasteful, not to litter, not to do... You know, I, I firmly believe that it's all of those things together that eventually forms a, a state of mind in a country. And when we get to that state of mind, what I call a, a, you know, a conservation state of mind in a country, 
it, it, it affects everybody, school teachers, politicians, bankers, investment houses, you know, everybody, um, then I think that's when we will finally have a real chance. So, you know, a lot of people listen to podcasts that we might do or read an article we might write or watch a film we may have done or listen to a speech from a stage, think somehow, perhaps, you know, we're doing something that they can't do. But I, I don't believe that. Um, you know, I really believe that it's people on the ground with their own little piece of land, whether that's in suburbia or whether, you know, planting a little garden on their balcony in the city or whatever it might be. I think these are the people that will make the difference. And I encourage everybody, everybody, the beautiful thing about conservation, Larry, is everybody can play a role. Exactly right. I, I, I did a lot of different talks where just kind of what you just talked about there, I said, if you have a flower in a pot sitting outside, you're contributing. Absolutely. And if you have a garden, you're contributing. Yeah. And I so totally to me, agree. It, totally it, 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 it doesn't have to be acres. It doesn't have to be no. islands, continents, whatever. Everybody yeah. makes has yeah. an impact regardless. Yeah. And that can be positive or it can be negative. And, yeah. But you can just as quickly make something like that into a positive. It's very true. And it's like, uh, you know, other big themes in society, like animal welfare. All of us have a responsibility to Absolutely. animal welfare. Absolutely. And all of us can can show a good example by caring for whether it's the animals that live in our homes or whether it's just, if we are going to harvest wild animals, to be, to be well-trained and to be very careful in what we do so we minimize suffering and, and pain for those animals. And also, which is something I have criticized the hunting public uh, for a lot and has, have taken some heat for, you know, I think we as hunters, for example, should be much more outspoken about poor animal welfare practices wherever we see them. And a lot of hunters will say to me, Shane, you know, we can't do that. You know, the first thing we're going to do if we do something like that, people are going to say, well, you kill them. I say, the point is, we harvest them Animals that have lived all their lives in the wild, they have known the wind and the rain and the sun and they have bred freely and they have looked after their young and they have defended their young and they have fought in, you know, in mating rituals. They've, they've done all of those kinds of things and yes, we do kill them in the end as hunters under legal regulations. We harvest them and then we take care of the meat and sometimes the hide. We even take out their antlers sometimes because we just like to, we're fascinated by them. And I said, you know, you compare that life to the lives of many of the animals that we have to raise in very high densities because we can't raise them otherwise. Nevertheless, if you compare their lives when people go and order their chicken at a restaurant or their pork or whatever it might be, you simply cannot compare those lives. Mm -hmm. But even those lives in the domestic, um, you know, uh, space where domestic animals are being raised, we, we need to do everything possible to make sure that those lives are as good as they possibly are. And we're getting better at it, Larry. We we're are. definitely we are. getting better at it. And I think anybody in that space who tries to do more than just what's required, you know, I think they're also a hero in, uh, in that sense, you know that animal welfare space. I feel very strongly about that. I, I, I cannot abide by the mistreatment of animals of any kind. I, I, I never could. And I consider, I consider animals and humans to be the same. So 
uh, you know, I don't like to see people abused, and I don't like to see animals abused or mistreated. Not not only abused, right? But mistreated. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, I get tickled every once in a while. I'll tell somebody and say, if you want to learn about animals, watch people. Yeah. And the reverse. And the that reverse. Is, the reverse of that. Yeah. I said there's so many things that we do that are very similar. Yeah. In so many different ways, and it's incredible. You know. I, I'm a people watcher a yeah. lot of times, yeah, yeah. but also an animal watcher. And, I, and an animal, I consider myself an animal lover yeah. as well, too. Yeah. But I've, I've learned so much about humanity by watching animals, and I've learned so much about animals by watching him. It's really interesting how, how closely we are in those kind of oh, yeah. in, in the world when yeah. you're right down to it. Yeah. Uh, I could we could go on for hours, and I'd I'd love to, and I'll find some way to get back to where we can go on for hours again. I yeah. so appreciate it. How does somebody get in touch with you? And and mention the book too, as to how people can get copies of the book. Sure. Uh, uh, and about uh, conservation uh, with visions. How how do well uh, all all they need to do is just just Google conservation visions. They'll they'll immediately be brought to the website, and I also have a second website which deals with the wild harvest initiative which yes. is something we can talk about in the well, future uh, you know what let's let's talk about that a little bit yeah. this is an idea tell me more about that as well too well that's a that's one of those uh, ideas that came about as a certain amount of reflection too you know right um, I've spent like you have like a lot of people have a lot of time trying to convince society that um, that conservation is important first of all um, and that it's meaningful to them directly and that they should be concerned about it. Um, and I've also talked a lot about hunting and, and, and angling and why I think those traditions are very important and worthwhile in society. Um, but we began to notice in the surveys that were being conducted that the, a lot of the messaging we thought was working wasn't necessarily resonating with the broader public. So we thought, for example, that the idea that, you know, um, hunting, for example, can be good for conservation would be a strong message. But it turns out that that isn't as strong a message as we had hoped it would be. And there are many, many other examples of that where we thought we were doing the right thing, but we weren't having the success we had. The second thing was that I constantly saw us in the sustainable use movement, the hunting and angling movement, mm -hmm. etc. I constantly saw us as having to fight the same fight over again, the same criticisms over again, the same reactions over again. And it just seemed that we were doomed to this inevitable uh, you know, defense. And I wanted to come up with something that I could conceive of as a relentless offense. And so I started to think about this from the perspective of, okay, what does society want? I mean, I have a bias. I, I have a background, a history, a culture, and I'm biased for that reason. But if I look across society, what are some of the big themes that may give me some insight as to how to reach society? And one of the things we all know that's happened in the past couple of decades, and it was happening before, but it's really prominent now, is this preoccupation with health and fitness and food, and where the, our food origins, where they come from, food security, of course, uh, they're big issues domestically, they're big issues internationally, they're big issues for men, for women, for people of all races and colors, for indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples, etc. 
And I suddenly started to think about this, and this idea of food and harvesting came to mind. And I started to say to myself, well, isn't that the real language we ought to be using? Isn't I mean, this is originally why we hunted, for example. We hunted for food and for clothing, you know. Um, yet in all the things that we've been talking about with hunting over the decades, you know, how much money it raises and how much job it's jobs it creates and all this kind of stuff, we really haven't dwelled very much on how much food it actually produces. So that got me wondering, has anybody ever brought together the information on exactly how much wild, healthy, organic, you know, effortless in the sense that the land produces itself, food is actually harvested by the millions of hunters and anglers in Canada and the United States each year. And Larry, I thought that I was going to find that pretty quickly. I thought I was going to find reports by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Department of Interior somewhere or Federal Government of Canada, whatever it might be. But to my great surprise, that was not the case. And so then I hired a person briefly to actually do a deeper dive into this, you know, thought I'd missed it. But in the end, I found I hadn't missed it. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to do it. And that meant dealing with, you know, 63 government agencies in Canada and the United States, which because of the North American model had a system of recording the information on how many, how many, how many elk, how many right. moose, how many white tail, right. how many whatever were harvested. So we have now compiled the largest uh, database in the temperate world on the recreational harvest of wild animals. We not only have all the harvest data by species, by jurisdiction, we also have scientifically verifiable body weights for all of those species and consumable weights. And so we have now produced the, the outputs of you know, the total amount of consumable wild food mm-hmm. that all of these hunters and anglers are, are obtaining. And the plan is um, not only to mobilize that information to explain that, look, these landscapes, private and public, and these waterways you know, that we have in our nations, these are first of all and most fundamentally food production systems. And we ought to look at them that way. Before we ever do anything with them, put a mine there, put a ski lodge there, put a gymnasium there, I don't care what it is, the very first thing we should be asking is how much food does that land produce? Because it includes mushrooms and berries and nuts and fruits and wild rices and whatever else. And that's the very first thing we should be asking, but we don't ask that. Environmental assessment processes don't ask that, and I want to transform that. But I also want to give a value to that wild meat and fish, because if people were not eating that, then they have to buy other commodities. Uh, And so there's an economic value of that wild food they're harvesting. And the people who are harvesting it are happy about it because it is hormone-free, and it is, you know, insecticide-free, and it is fertilizer-free. And also, when we harvest it, we do not manipulate the land. You know, we don't have to take large sections of land to grow corn or to raise cattle or whatever it might be. We're not trying to say that this is a solution to large-scale agriculture. We need that as well. But why take out of a society that is completely preoccupied with health and longevity and fitness and good food, why would we ever stop doing something that was providing billions, and we have the data now, Larry, billions and billions of meals? In addition to that, with the Wild Harvest Initiative, and we have partners, state agencies are partners, 
big industry, Bass Pro, Leopold, Sitka, Mystery Ranch, etc. Our partners, lots of NGOs. Dallas Safari Club was the first in the door to help support this work. Um, but we have, you know, the Elk Foundations and we have the Wall Sheep Foundations and we have, uh, you know, the backcountry hunters and anglers. So we have this really complicated uh, partnership of, of, of groups that are helping to provide this. You know, we want to take that information and we want to mobilize it into society and show how much of a real contribution this is making in families' food economies. And in some families it's very important, in some regions it's very important, in some other cases it's not so important. But even where it's not so important to the family food economy, we know that hunters and anglers are sharing as all wild harvesters do their food. And so all of those people that we are sharing this food with, they are probably part of the explanation for why, since the 1950s, every survey of public opinion in the United States and Canada has indicated, if you hunt for food, Larry Wyshoon, we're with you. Yes. 80 to 85 percent. Yes, yes. Any other motivation as you start to go through them, you know, it starts to fall, it starts to fall, it starts to fall. So I'm really interested in reinforcing that. And another thing we're doing in this Wild Harvest Initiative, and we now are the only people in the world who have this information. You know, Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't have it, the Canadian no, Wildlife Service doesn't no, no, we have it. Conservation Visions has it in our partnership. But one of the other things we're really interested in doing is really interested in showing how much this food is shared. So in every state where we have a partnership, we run a survey to the successful hunters and we ask them, you know, how much wild meat did you share? Who did you share it with? And of course that runs the gamut from family members to colleagues to neighbors across the street um, to, to, to disadvantaged, you know, people who, who are not doing well in society and, and, and we can help them in that way. And it's all helping to put an entirely new face on the hunter. The hunter is the sharing person in society. And it's building alliances between the people who hunt and the people who fish with other people who harvest in the outdoors, the people who harvest berries and wild rices and firewood uh, and maple syrup and wild honey and wild leeks and nuts and berries. And all of a sudden, when you start to think about that, we have now this enormous community of people of all kinds. You know, people who hunt and people who don't. People who harvest other things but would never want to harvest a wild animal. People who harvest wild animals and also harvest all these other kinds of things. And the people you see there are little children with their parents just gathering mushrooms or picking berries. You see grandmothers baking the berry pies. You see the, this whole sense of community and sharing. And of course, this is what hunting was about. In the beginning, right? We were hunter-gatherers, and the exactly. hunt brought all that food was shared yes. with the community. Yes. And indigenous peoples here were doing the same thing yes. you know, 20, 30,000 years before we came to this continent. And um, it's been quite a journey, um, and now our data is being used by the Convention on Biodiversity and other major enterprises around the world. We are looking at possibility of expanding this now to Europe and to parts of Africa um, and um, and it, but it's a simple it's like all things Larry it's just a simple idea you know how much food are we harvesting and then you start to think about it why aren't we harvesting more 
because we know we can we can improve land absolutely, for wildlife, absolutely, right? Absolutely, we can have way more wildlife out on that land yes. if we want to have it. And if we had way more wildlife, we can harvest way more wildlife, and we can have much more of that wild food being available to people. And of course, what does that do? That says to the broad society and all the people we share this food with, you know, that land is worth something to me. And to come back to my point about trying to make people aware of conservation, hmm, if we keep that land healthy and clean and productive, keep our waters flowing properly, you know, don't denude our hillsides so we don't have, you know, too much erosion, if we make it healthy for wildlife, we love to be out there in the outdoors enjoying it. But we'll also be able to help provide extremely high quality, the best food possible for, uh, for our families and for our neighbors and so forth. And I consider this now to be my next big mission. And of course, it is very closely related to the North American model. Absolutely. Because yes, harvesting is so much a part of that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So many different ways. It's a very exciting thing. It is very really, exciting. It's really catching on, I have to say. Thank you so much for being with us around the campfire. I can't wait to get you back again. Well, anytime. We'll, anytime. Next time we'll try to, we'll either do it by phone and put a little fire between us or something like right that. On. Or whatever. Or we'll actually go somewhere with a real fire. Now we're talking. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us again right here again next week for DSC's Campfires. Thank you so much for joining us today. Shane, thank you so much for the time spent with us. Always a pleasure, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for joining us around the campfire. To leave a comment or suggestion for an upcoming episode, go to Instagram at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. Please join me right here next week for another DSC's Campfire. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas, H3 Whitetail Solutions, Remington, Texas Wildlife Association, TRHP Outdoors.